Hello and welcome once again to the Quack On podcast. I'm Doug TS, and as always, I'm joined by Moss and DuckedOut84. So in today's episode, we're going to talk a little bit briefly about the Alamo Bowl, which wrapped up five or six days ago now. We'll talk a little bit more about the most recent Duck staffing hires, and then we'll get into some thoughts around next year and the college football playoffs and college football in general. Uh, so with that, why don't we kick it off first with just a quick, I think most, by now most people have kind of digested and moved on from the Alamo Bowl, so we're not going to spend a lot of time on that today. But Moss, why don't you give us just a quick uh, quick minute or so of your thoughts? I'm, I'm going to jump back to the last four games. So in the Alamo Bowl, we are down four touchdowns at the half. There's not a whole heck of a lot to take away from that. Um, but three of our last four games, the game was completely over at the half. And then against the Beavers, we're pretty dominant against what was a decent team. I mean, they, they made a bowl game, so that's it, pretty good is it for a Pac-12 opponent. So I, I didn't really buy into the, you know, the teams falling apart, the bad locker room. I think the injuries just finally caught up on both sides of the ball, and it was just too much. Um, the one positive thing that I think everybody wanted to see was the younger wide receivers step up and play pretty well, and I, I thought they did. Uh, not much else to take away. When you're losing that bad, you kind of throw everything out the window and throw the ball downfield as far as you can, and we did that and caught a few of them. Um, but that's that's my whole take on the game. Sucked. We got blown out and lost to a better team. Yeah, I mean, there's it's like Moss said, it's hard to take away a lot from a game where you're down that big that early, and you're just kind of chucking the ball up to uh, try to get back in it. But, uh, hey, it was nice to see the young receivers – make plays man Thornton is fast for his size nice to see Chris Hudson make some plays Ray Franklin made a couple plays the one where he just lost the ball or didn't try for it that was weird I admittedly didn't watch much of the second half because I had other things going on you know you, you kind of just could tell very early on this was kind of the same deal as all of the 2021 season Oregon kind of just shot itself in the foot again and again and again and it, it, it cost us. And, you know, against good teams, you can't do that. So there's not much else to take away. Season's over. Um, ended with a loss, like I suspect most of us felt it would. And we move on. Yeah, I think something you said there kind of resonated with me as well, is it, it, it did feel like, especially the first half of that game, was kind of a microcosm of a lot of the season. Um, you know, one thing, one of the positives I, I took out of that game, which I think doesn't really matter for the future, but answered, I think, some questions that I had about the offense uh, philosophy in general was right from the gate, we came out playing very up-tempo, locking personnel, going fast, fast, fast. And it, and it really worked, even, even in the first half, even though we only had three points, we were moving the ball pretty effectively um, with that mindset, which was more similar to the Joe Moorhead offensive offenses we have seen in the past and and less so than what we've seen in his time at Oregon thus far. So I, I think there's something to be said there for for why that is. Um but in that first half, for all the ball moving we did, we we just had too many self-inflicted, you know, wounds. We had the obviously the interception on the first drive, the second drive, we got all the way down to first and goal from the four, had a had a walk-in touchdown negated by a a holding or a false start call, and then we got a sack, and then we ended up settling for three. 
I think we had another turnover on downs in in their territory in the first half, and and we had a we punted from the forty one yard line. So after you know some some misses and mistakes, so it was it was it was very much similar to a lot of the offensive mistakes we've seen that were really costly at times this year. But I thought the tempo and the aggressiveness on offense was great. I, you know, I, I did, the other positive that I'll take away from that game is. The team never really quit on either side of the ball. Um, and our defense, I didn't, I don't get to judge the defense on that game. They were, we're playing walk-ons, we're playing offensive linemen, we're playing guys out of position. It was crazy, so whatever. But on both sides of the ball, I, I thought I was encouraged by the fact that nobody quit. They just kept playing hard and kept coming, and and I think that's credit credit to those guys. So, um, any last thoughts on the Alamo Bowl? One thing we didn't mention, the Anthony Brown experiment is now over. <laughs> Yay! Uh, his, his last game as a duck was his best game as a duck. That was his best game as a duck. I, I would say it was Ohio State, but... No, well, I disagree. I disagree. Nah, well, you know. When, when, you, when you chuck the ball down the field three times and you get three touchdowns, you, you look pretty yeah, good. Yeah, but he actually right? made those passes for the first time in two years or a year. Um, all right, well, switching the page, we'll go back to the Ducks have now completed their entire coaching staff for 2022. So um, we've talked about, I think, half of the guys previous to now. Uh, so I'll just go down the list and everyone can give their thoughts on these hires. So the most recent one announced today officially is Junior Adams will come over to be co-offensive coordinator and wide receivers coach coming over from the rival Washington Huskies, who he's been the coach up there, I think, for wide receivers for three years now. Dio, what do you think? This is, this is, I think, a pretty good hire. Um, we had a lot of names thrown around that didn't quite seem realistic. And Junior Adams is a guy that has a lot of ties to the West Coast, um, ties to the Pacific Northwest. And from the outside looking in, I think the receivers at Washington probably were their, one of their better units over the past couple of years. He's coached a lot of good players in the past. Uh, he was the coach for Cooper Cup's freshman year at Eastern Washington, which would lead you to believe that he probably discovered and recruited him. He also uh, developed Cedric Wilson at Boise State, um, who's an NFL guy right now for the Dallas Cowboys. Has a good history and seems to be, was one of their better recruiters under Jimmy Lake. But really, that whole program was just held back by Lake, a disinterest in recruiting from him, and just a really poor offense from John Donovan. So, you know, if people want to blame him for that, you know, or put some blame on Junior Adams for what John Donovan did, they can, I suppose, but I, it's hard to see it like that. And, you know, for Kalen DeBoer, this was probably, I would say, his biggest win in terms of getting an assistant coach, keeping an assistant coach. That was probably the best coach on his staff. And now he's gone. And he's probably just going to replace him with some analyst from Fresno State or something. So I think it's a good hire. Get a good coach, a good recruiter. It's hard not like that. Yeah, he was certainly the best recruiter on the UW staff or the most proven recruiter on the UW staff. Moss, what about you? I, I think it falls in line with just our staff so far. Uh, recruiting's priority one. And then two, usually uh, there's a regional action to it as well. So it, here, here's your hometown guy. Here's your Pacific Northwest guy. Spent almost his whole career here. I, I know he dabbed a little bit in Chattanooga and then was at Western Kentucky for a year or two. But 
you know, he played at Oregon State for a couple of years, coached in Boise, he's coached in Seattle now, coached at Eastern Washington. I haven't been in love with his product at Washington, but that's probably just Washington not being very good. Uh, hard to give too much credit for anything at Eastern Washington. I mean, we saw what happened once Vernon Adams and Cup were gone. And when you have two guys that, that can play at that level at the FCS side, that's you can do some pretty huge things. So um, just Bo Baldwin going to Cal and just being completely terrible kind of shot that whole thing down about what the, that offensive staff could do from Eastern when they all went places. But I, I like the hire. It's, it's wide receiver is a lot like running back. Uh, if you recruit the right guys, there isn't a whole heck of a lot of coaching you need to do after that. So it's good. It's a Northwest footprint, which doesn't rec- doesn't put out a ton of talent, but I think you need to at least have a presence in the area you're located, especially with SC getting a pretty decent recruiting staff now too. Well, and I think particularly if you look at the Northwest and the Seattle area, that's an area that has been producing more talent as of late. Um, you know, we, we think some of it is sometimes overrated, and and I would agree with that. But it's still certainly much more talent that comes out of Oregon, and it has been on the rise, and there has been some real, real good talent coming out of there. So he's a guy who not only can help recruit some of some of those players to Oregon, but also keep them away from Washington, which is kind of a double whammy. Um, so yeah, I mean, from that standpoint, I it's hard to see. He might not have been my first choice as a wide receiver hire because I was probably looking for some unrealistic, you know, splashy big name. But I mean, if you can't really complain too much about about him in that spot, it's a it's a very solid hire. Yeah. And the reality is with with Brian McClendon leaving, you were never going to upgrade. I don't think because McClendon is a good coach and he's a phenomenal recruiter. So if you can find someone who's, you know, 70, 75% of the recruiter that McClendon is, you're in good shape. And, and Adams looks like he could be that. You know, it, it, the rumors coming out of Washington are that a lot of those receivers, and, and they have a bunch of four-star guys up there, that they're not super jazzed that he's gone and they're looking to go elsewhere. So we'll have to see what happens there. All right, moving on. Uh, next hire is probably the least experienced coach on the staff, which is saying something considering we have a number of pretty young guys. Um, Carlos Lachlan, running backs, will be our running backs coach coming over from Western Kentucky. Moss, what can you tell us about Carlos? Uh, nothing. I don't know anything about him. Uh, he coached right up the road in Bowling Green. I, all I know about that is they have a weird mascot. They make Corvettes there, so... Just looking at it, at his resume here, had an off-field role at Florida State, so he's got some ties there, and then he coached high school ball in Memphis, and so that, that's a pretty pretty talented area. So I don't know if this is regional or what. Um, you know, with the hires we made at coordinator and a few other spots, we were going to have to go cheap at some positions, and running back's probably the easiest one to go cheap at. So. He has to know somebody, and they have they have faith in him. So this is one of those. We'll see how he recruits, and we'll see how he develops the guys that are on the roster now. Yeah, this definitely seems like a Dillingham hire. They were together at Memphis, and then they were together at Florida State for a year. Um, there's just there's not a lot you can say about Lachlan. Western Kentucky, from what I know, also was a, mostly a passing offense that didn't seem to use their running backs a lot. Um, I mean, after all, I think their their quarterback broke some of Joe Burrow's records this season, which is something. 
But, you know, for me, I want a running back coach that can recruit. And when you're a director of high school relations at more than one place, it usually means you have good relationships with high school coaches and players. Otherwise, you're not going to be in that role. So that would suggest to me that there's potential for him to be a good recruiter. And if he's got ties to the South, I mean, go get some guys from the South. You know, running backs, you you know, you think that Najee Harris got a ton of coaching up at Alabama? No, he was just a freak. So go find those freaks. Go find those great athletes and get them on the field. And if Lachlan can do that, it'll be a success. Um, and he'll probably go back to the South at some point. But, yeah, it's, it seems like kind of a budget hire. Um, not much else to say about it because he doesn't have a lot of position coaching experience. Yeah, I think, you know, Jim Mastro was an excellent, excellent running backs coach. Um, obviously been doing it a very long time. Everybody we've had in that room has improved under his tutelage. But you could say he was an average at best recruiter. I mean, we didn't really land any major running back recruits during Mario's tenure here at Oregon. Not that we haven't had good players at that position, but you know, compared to the quality of recruit we were getting previously at Oregon year after year, um, it was definitely a step a step down. So is is Lachlan going to be able to coach the position as well as Mastro? No, probably not. Certainly, certainly early on, no. Um, but you know, could it be an improvement in recruiting? Maybe we don't know. But that also, I think, to your point, is the position where recruiting is probably more important, or as you know, more important maybe than the coaching skills there. So I don't know. We'll see. It's a big mystery to me as well. But um, you know, you you I kind of like you think that those high school relations maybe are are part of that and maybe he'll help recruit not just the running back room but others across the roster as well so i think that one's definitely one of the big wait and see hires on this staff for me um let's move on now to drew Maringer, who's been hired to be the tight ends coach for oregon um he's coming over previously his most recent job from New Mexico, where he was the passing game quarterback or coordinator and quarterbacks coach. Any thoughts there? Seems like a really good recruiter. Um, has a good history of. He was a national recruiter in in of the year in 2019. Got Brew McCoy there. Brew McCoy then left immediately. Brew McCoy is an interesting case overall, so I wouldn't put that on Meringer. And then got Jordan Whittington, who was another five star. And then just a, a bunch of, of other guys, uh, you know, high four-star guys that are still contributing for Texas now. So it seems like a, a recruiting hire first and foremost. And there's a lot of, you know, rumors and, and hearsay about, you know, oh, he was hated at this place. He, people didn't like him at this place. He did this here. And usually when you go from a place like Texas and you go become the tight end coach at FAU and then the QB coach at New Mexico you probably have a bit of an image issue. You probably have issues with how other coaches view you and want to work with you. So this is, he's, he's arguably overqualified to be our tight end coach. He's been an OC before. Granted, it wasn't great at Rutgers, but he's, he's coached some good programs and now he's our tight end coach, even though he doesn't have a lot of experience coaching tight ends. So, so that tells me this is landing kind of taking a shot on a guy who could be a really, really good recruiter and bring in some guys for you. And, and if, he, if he does something and he messes up, he's a tight end coach. He's replaceable. You can cut him. You can move on. You can find someone else. I know a lot of people were not super jazzed about this hire. I think it's high ceiling. 
and that's that's good enough for me, essentially. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to agree that there's not a whole lot that can go wrong here. Um, you you kind of look at his, his background, and it was probably a little too much too soon. Um, but he's a GA at Ohio State under Urban Meyer. He basically followed Tom Herman around, and Tom Herman kind of has a bad image in the coaching world now too, but is very successful all the way up until the point he got to Texas where that didn't work out for him. But obviously you can tell Maringer's trajectory has kind of fallen off a little bit. So I, I agree with you. I think he's a great recruiter. Um, offensively, Tom Herman was always really good. So, I mean, I think you're bringing somebody in on the staff that probably has a pretty good grasp of the game, which is always good. And like you said, tight ends, if it doesn't work out, you just get rid of them. But if it does work out, I mean, it's a huge win for Oregon here, having a guy like that on staff that can recruit like that. And maybe he stays and gets promoted or he goes somewhere else. But you're probably not going to find somebody with a resume like this that's willing to come in and coach tight end. So I, I think overall that's that's a good hire. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I admit I, I don't know much about, just like most of these coaches, I don't know much about Maringer either. But his his career trajectory is interesting because it does seem like he's been kind of getting – progressively worser job or progressively worse jobs or worse schools that he's coaching at. So, but like you said, he's tight ends coach. So he's going to be coaching four or five guys. You know, if it doesn't work out, it's probably pretty easy to, uh, to make a switch. So. One other um, note that I, I just thought of on Maringer, if I can go ahead, throw yeah. it out there, uh, his resume is really, really good for someone who is 34 years old. I mean, there are coaches who are 44 year old, 44 years old, who have not coached at the level of programs and held the positions that he has. So, I thought that was really interesting. I had heard of him when he was at Texas, but I didn't know he was this young. I mean, if he started, if he was their wide receiver coach and passing coordinator starting in 2017, and he's 34, he would have been like 29 or so. That's really young. That that's interesting. I was, I was just going to say, I, I don't think you're going to find many people that have coached under Urban Meyer, Tom Herman, and Lane Kiffin to come in and be a tight end coach for you. So I, I really see this. This is a slam dunk hire for that position. All right, moving on. This will be the last um, coaching staff hire. And we talked about him, I think, briefly on our last podcast, but it wasn't official. It was just a rumor at the time. So maybe we need to go a little more in depth now. Uh, that'll be Joe Lorig coming over from Penn State. So he will be the special teams coordinator and also coaching Nickelbacks, um, which was an interesting announcement today because that essentially means that Dan Landing himself will be coaching inside linebackers uh, and we'll have three defensive back coaches. But it also means to me that I think they're really going to have Lorig spend his time coaching special teams, which I think, as we all would agree, is a huge need. <laughs> Uh, we we have really struggled on special teams over the last six, seven, eight years um, since kind of the late Chip era, maybe early Mark Helfrich days. I think we were pretty solid in the in that time frame, but have been really quite disastrous since then. And um, just kind of looking at the stats from this year uh, at Penn State, they had a top five team in um, in punt punt coverage and a top twenty team in kickoff coverage. Their return teams were not as not as good this year, but they had had successes under him in previous years. What do you think about that one, Moss? I, I, I got to meet him during the 2017 season when he was with Memphis. Um, 
Pretty sharp guy. I, I I know he played his college ball at Western Oregon, so he's at least he's been to the state before. Kind of bounced around a little bit, mostly at small schools. Had a short stay there at Arizona State, so he's he's been in the Pac-10, Pac-12 before. I'm really Penn State was his biggest job, and now he's coming to Eugene. So, like you said, Nickel, he's only going to coach two or three guys, which obviously tells you he's going to do something more, and that's going to be special teams. Which, if there's something we've needed to improve over the last four years, that would be special teams in general. The coverage is bad. The return game is almost non-existent, especially in the punt. So. If we can get some legitimate return men and cover some kicks every once in a while, I think that's that's a huge win for the program. I, overall, not sure about recruiting, but I mean, you can't have a hundred percent recruiters on staff. You got to have a little bit of football coach there. So I, I think that's what this is. Probably another one of those, you know, lower end budget hires, but could end up being huge overall. Yeah, just to jump in really quick, looking back in 2020, their Penn State return teams were both in the top 25. They're both their punt return and their kick return team. So some of that obviously is a is a testament to who you have returning the kicks, but uh, it, it does show that he's had top-ranked units in all four phases. Yeah, I think when he was at Memphis, the three years he was their special teams coordinator, they didn't give up a single return touchdown in all three years, which is pretty impressive. Um, and for me personally, that's something I care way more about is how good your kickoff and punt coverage is. I would much rather the other team not score at all from returns than we score at all on returns. And return, kick returns and punt returns, I think a lot of it is part of it's luck because, you know, every every team is, they, they, they send players down differently, blocks all get set up differently. It's a lot of chaos. Um, and really you need a, a good return man. Um, a high-level return man to do. I mean, Britton Covey's a great example. I mean, I'm not a huge Britton Covey fan, but that kid's really instinctive, and he's slippery, and he's quick, and he can move around, and, and he's that's just what he's good at. And he's he's probably going to get a job in the NFL because of it. So he's a good example. Uh, we don't really have... We haven't had a guy like that for a little while. Mikhail Wright is really, really fast and a really good athlete, and they just kind of let him do his thing his freshman year, and then I don't know what we did... We would play Mikhail Wright for like the first two kickoffs, and then it was Chris Hudson, and that was just bizarre. So if we can improve, and I think with Powledge and, and with Lorig, those are two really good special teams coaches from their previous stops. So hopefully it improves. It would be really nice if it did, and, and I hope that Lanning doesn't uh, punt to good returners at the end of second halves, games where the playoff is on the line. So that also helps if that gets improved. Indeed. Uh, shifting over, one more staff hire we should mention. Um, head strength and conditioning coach has been filled uh, with Aaron Feld moving on with Mario to Miami. We have hired, Oregon has hired uh, Wilson Love um, over from the same job at Ole Miss. So he followed Lane Kiffin originally from Alabama over to FAU to take the head strength and conditioning coach job there and then followed him again to Ole Miss to take the same job and and we were able to lure him away from Ole Miss to take our, our head strength and conditioning coach up here at Oregon. So what do we think about this hire? I think it's a really good hire. I think it's, it's one of the best hires I think you could make. Um, that Ole Miss team, if you watch them this year, man, they're well-conditioned because they run so stinking fast on offense. You know that that means they, they got a good conditioning program down there. And uh, they're an SEC school, so they have to be strong on, on the line of scrimmage. 
Um, and he's an SEC guy, and it seems like he knows that uh, coming from Alabama. Uh, he was someone that Mario tried to hire uh, back when he was first looking for a strength coach. But I think he was in his, he just finished his first season as FEU strength conditioning coordinator and probably just didn't want to leave that quickly. From watching interviews with him, he seems like a really genuine guy. He's a complete whack job, but a lot of good strength conditioning coaches are. You have to have a lot of energy, high energy, and get kids motivated. I think it's it's a great hire. I was honestly surprised when his name got announced as we were we were pursuing him because he he didn't seem like someone who was going to leave Ole Miss. But then you think about it and you go, well, the Hatfield Dallin complex is basically Candyland for a strength conditioning coach. Uh, and with the Marcus Marriott Performance Center, I mean, these facilities are almost second to none. And I think a lot of coaches would want to work here. And sounds like he did. And he's he's boots on the ground in Eugene as of 4 a.m. this morning. So uh, looking forward to see what he does this offseason. Yeah, and in this part of the country, for the longest time, there was two strength conditioning coaches that you wanted to hire out of their tree. And that was Scott Cochran and Scott Sinclair, one at Bama, one at Georgia. Now they're both at Georgia. I mean, that's where we got Aaron Feld from. He was under both of them at some point, and love is too. So um, you want somebody from that. I mean, those are usually your strongest programs on the field uh, as far as player development. To me, your strength conditioning coach is your second most important coach behind the head man. When you talk about player development, the majority of that's coming from your strength conditioning program. The position coaches, they do a lot of work and they help and they kind of fine tune it. But the work that's done off the field has way more of an impact than positional coaches. So um, I am a fan of anybody that's that's either from Cochran or Sinclair, and he's one of them. So I I think it's a good hire. Yeah, it speaks to me that he seems to be have have had a very fast rise up through a an organization that, uh, you know, that that speaks volumes about right. So he he graduated from Alabama. He got hired on there as a GA, as a defensive GA, and then after doing that for I think for a year, then they they made him an assistant strength and conditioning coach. He did that for two years at Bama, and Kiffin thought so highly of him, he made him his head strength coach. You know when he moved when he got his own job, and then brought him again to his next own job. So that tells me some he's doing something right clearly and and i think you're what you mentioned about Ole miss you know watching them this year uh i think speaks a lot about his his abilities and uh i i think kiffin has been outspoken in the past about not wanting to lose this guy so it, it's a real coup to bring him over and and continue the fourth quarter program and continue the, all the work we've done in the strength and conditioning department under mario's tenure and now just continue growing and building that. So, you know, I think that's, we've covered now, I think over the last several podcasts, the entire staff, um, just do, I'll do a quick rundown on what that staff looks like. And then maybe you can each give me thoughts on just as a whole, what do you think of this staff, um, you know, going into 2022? So head coach, inside linebacker, Dan Landing, of course, offensive coordinators, offensive coordinator, QB coach, Ken Dillingham, running backs coach, Carlos Lachlan, tight ends, Drew Merringer, wide receivers, Junior Adams, offensive line, Adrian Clem, defensive coordinator, outside linebacker, not official, but all but official, Tosh Lapoy, defensive line, Tony Tuiati, 
Special teams, nickelbacks, Joe Lorig, cornerbacks, Demetrius Martin, and co-DC and safeties, Matt Polage. Pallage. And then, of course, chief of staff, Marshall Malchow from A&M, and as we just discussed, Wilson Love, the head strength and conditioning coach. Dio, what do you think? Man, this is a, I must be honest, this is a kick-ass staff. This is better than anything I thought Lanning could build. Um, and when he got hired, Moss and I were pretty, eh, we're not sure about this, but the one thing that we did agree on was he needs to nail his staff. And from a recruiting aspect, he absolutely did. This is a better recruiting staff than we've ever had at Oregon. It's way better than anything Mario Cristobal had. And, you know, Mario Cristobal is one of the best recruiting head coaches out there. Lanning's probably not going to live up to that. But you got guys like Martin and Clem who on their own have, have taken they've taken five stars to Pac-12 schools in the past. So that's, that's a huge thumbs up. And then you've got good coaches across the board, too. I mean, Teodi is regarded as a pretty good recruiter and an up-and-comer as a defensive line coach. Junior Adams is a good coach. Dillingham's going to be you know, interesting as a, basically a first-time play caller, but he's considered a good recruiter. Merringer is considered a good recruiter. It's just across the board, really, talent acquisition is huge. And coming from a place like Georgia, I think Lanning gets that, and that's why the staff is built out like it is. So... It's way better than anything I thought we'd do, and I'm excited to see what, what they end up doing in 2022 and beyond. I think there's going to be a lot of learning on the job, but almost all these guys come from a really strong background or, or have been under head coaches that have been very successful. Um, obviously, you kind of want some experience, but there's just not a whole heck of a lot of it on this staff. But there's nothing we can do about that. But recruiting-wise, very good. And I think a lot of it makes sense because, like I've said before, it, almost every coach has a different region that they're familiar with or have ties in and are also very good recruiters. So um, Oregon has to be a program that can recruit the whole country. Uh, so it makes sense to do that. You can't just do it locally. There isn't enough there, not even close. And Southern California is going to get tougher. So you got to be able to leave and, and get somebody from anywhere. And so we were kind of doing that under Mario, but I, I think this staff is built a little bit better to do that more. How the product on the field looks, we'll see. Yeah, I think you kind of touched on it there. It, it, what is remarkable to me is several things. One, just from top to bottom, the recruiting acumen of the entire staff is pretty evident and pretty pretty glaring. It's not like, oh, we've got... Five recruiters and, and five coaches. I mean, every staff is a And the diversity of their kind of reach is pretty pretty wide-ranging as well. And I think that's really smart. Uh, and it seems really calculated. And, and like, there was, a, there was a definite plan there. Um, from a coaching standpoint, I think, if I break it down between offense and defense, I think it's really hard to find anything to quibble about on the defensive side of the ball. Um, I mean, you've got proven proven coaches at every level of the defense, led by, of course, Coach Lanning uh, coming over from the Kirby Smart tree. Um, really, really expect big things on that side of the ball. I think, I think to your point, Moss, I think I would agree, especially on the offensive side of the ball. From a coaching standpoint, there are more question marks. There are more unknowns. Um, you know, we think Dillingham will be good, but he hasn't done it. Lachlan's young, Clem, Clem Jr. have some experience there. Marringer's bounced around. So I'm pretty excited overall about the staff. I think if I had to say top to bottom, 
you know, compared to last year's staff, I think it's a better staff on aggregate across the board. Now, not in every aspect, not in every position, but uh, on aggregate, I think it's it's hard to look at the staff and see, oh my gosh, there's a definite weak link. And I think you could look at last year's staff and say that at a, at a position or two. But last year's staff has more proven coaches. So I think that's the trade-off there. And we'll just have to wait and, and see what happens. Okay, so moving on to the next topic. Um, now that the season is over, the Ducks finished 10-4, and won the Pac-12 North Division, beat Ohio State at the Horseshoe, but really ended the year losing two out of three to Utah, losing the, the Pac-12 title game, and then, of course, losing the Alamo Bowl to Oklahoma. Um, kind of overall, quick thoughts on the season as a whole. I mean, we touched on it. In an earlier pod, I think after the the Oregon State game, and this was like the most boring, disappointing ten win season you could have. We finished ten and four, um, and this team just a lot of injuries. Towards the end of the season, it kind of kind of came to light that maybe your head coach's heart wasn't in it. You played a you did not have a great talent at quarterback, and Anthony Brown seems like a good kid. He really does but he's just not a good quarterback. You played a lot of veterans who honestly probably should have left or been benched for more talented players. And, you know, it's you come out of this season and you're kind of like looking for a positive, and there really isn't one. You beat Ohio State, great, but it, it felt like a totally different season by the end uh, of the year. So, you know, I... I can't call a 10-win season a failure. You can't. That's that's great. Most teams would kill for that. But it's just, it's rough. So I'm, I am glad to be moving on from 2021, turning a new page, uh, entering a new chapter with Dan Lanning, and we'll see what the future holds. But weird season, man. I can't, I can't remember the last time I was in Autzen that many times and just tearing my hair out and just sitting in my seat just kind of like, this is... This is not fun to watch. Well, and I mean, let's expand that a little bit more. I mean, you could almost say that's, in a nutshell, the, the Cristobal era. It feels like a lot of missed opportunity and, and a lot of like, yeah, the record's pretty good, but there's just something not quite right when you watch it. Yeah, if if you just look at the the barometer of college football, anytime you win ten games, that's a pretty successful season. I, I think that's the the minimum of of what a a top program looks for. But if you ten years from now, this is going to be the year we beat Ohio State, and that's the only thing you'll remember about it. If you go back to the '06 season, the only thing you remember about it is we beat Oklahoma. It, it'll be another thing of that, except with just a higher win total. Wasn't great. Didn't take any hardware away from it. Lost our head coach. Not really any remarkable play. It's just going to be one of those, we beat the Buckeyes finally, and that'll be the end of it. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I just It just feels like a season where it should have been more, right? It, it, especially after you win that Ohio State game, and you're thinking like, okay, everything's in front of us. You know, you've got KT in his third year. You've got all these 
you know, guys, all these highly recruited, recruited, rated guys across the roster on defense. You've got an experienced offense up and down the lineup. And the schedule was all laid out there. And it just felt like, yeah, injuries hit us. But I don't know. It just felt like the team never really reached its potential. I don't even know. I mean, did we peak at Ohio State? Maybe. It, it just feels like we just kind of like tripped along, barely getting out of our own way most of the season, and then just kind of fell apart at the end due to a whole number of factors, um, internal mostly. It was just weird. It like it, it just I, I can't remember a less satisfying ten win season. Uh, I don't think there has been one. I, it felt like a five hundred season the way it played out. Yeah, usually when we win ten games, the team's pretty good. But this team won ten games, and they arguably weren't that good. weren't bad, but weren't good either. You know, it it, it felt like a team that really <laughs> essentially peaked in week two. And then that's not when you want to peak. You know, you want to peak in late October, November, if anything, and, and, and win all your games then. And we didn't do that at all. Part of me suspects that maybe the team kind of knew, hey, we're probably going to have a, a new coaching staff, a new coach next year. There was just, it seemed like a big disconnect across the board. And at the end of the day, if, if that's how it was, then it, it might be a good thing that a new regime is coming in. So... Yeah, I mean, like you both said, it's it wasn't very satisfying, but it's it's over, and we're waiting nine months until Georgia. Yeah, I, I think I think you're right. I think it is probably a good thing that we're getting a new regime because I don't I don't know how sustainable this thing was going forward. I, I, it feels like to me, you saw a lot of individual talent, and you even saw. Um, development of individual talent up and down the roster at certain guys, certain positions, you'd look and say, oh, man, that guy's, that guy's really good, and he's gotten better, and the coaches have really coached him up. But it never really felt like the, the accumulation of that talent ever turned into something more, something bigger, something greater. You know, you see teams like Utah, not nearly as much talent as Oregon, but they played together with the right schemes and the right leadership and the right coaching and the right kind of collective were all on the same page and they were able to accomplish more than than their talent says they should whereas if you look at Oregon it almost feels like the opposite right like you see a bunch of individually talented people running around but they're not really all on the same page and putting it all together to maximize that as a as a full unit on either side of the ball, particularly on defense, I think. Because on offense, I think a lot of that you can take back to one position, the quarterback. But defensively, especially this year, it felt like we have a lot of really talented defensive guys, and our defense is bad. And that's just hard to explain other than coaching. So let's move to a national stage now. We had the college football playoffs this past weekend. Uh, Alabama beating Cincinnati pretty handily uh, in a fairly low scoring, in my mind, wasn't very entertaining game. And then I thought the, the Georgia-Michigan game was more fun to watch, maybe, maybe because Dan Lanning was coaching in it, but a, a little bit more of a blowout. It just felt like 
that game was over halfway through the first quarter, and then it was just, what's the final score going to be? Moss, what do you? What were your thoughts on those two games, and and what do you think about the 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 final between Georgia and Alabama? Like I was telling you guys during the week, it was the Bama Cincinnati game was going to be exactly like the Alabama Washington game in sixteen. The only team that could beat Alabama in that game was themselves, and so they weren't going to do anything. They were just going to pound the ball, hit some screens, and eventually they just wear them out. And that's what they did. They're just so much better of a roster. I just, I don't ever want to see a team like Cincinnati in a four-team playoff again. Like, the golf and talent there, I understand we keep this archaic way of choosing teams where we basically just mold together the coaches and the AP poll and just pick the top four. Just because a team didn't lose a game on a bad schedule, I think that's awful. Uh, The Georgia-Michigan game, Michigan wasn't a good team, and I think everybody knew that. It's just Ohio State was bad this year by Ohio State standards. So you saw the gap in talent. I mean, it was just – it was so apparent from the from the coin toss. I mean, at the coin toss, you saw Davis, number 99, against Michigan center, number 68, and it was like, that guy has to block that mountain of a human being all game. He's not going to do it. And, of course, it was just an absolute runaway. So – um, we got the rematch. I think everybody knew it was coming. So in the SEC championship game, you got to look back. Bama hasn't been an underdog, a true like, hey, Bama, you're not going to win all the way back to like, what, 2008, maybe. So you've had Bama with the target on their back for almost two decades now. Not, not quite that long. Let's go 13, 14 years. And then finally... The whole country saying, uh-oh, it's your time to lose now. So and a motivated Alabama is an awesome sight. So you saw what happened there. I think that pendulum kind of swings back to Georgia now. And I do think Georgia is the more complete team. So I'm going to pick Georgia by seven in the national championship. I mean, I didn't even watch the Alabama-Cincinnati game, admittedly. Because uh, kind of like what Moss said, I just had a feeling of Alabama's not going to do a whole lot. And they're just going to beat Cincinnati. And Cincinnati, they're not a, a horrible team by any means. They're easily the best group of five team. But that's not saying a ton. I, I mean, I think a, you know, a, a Utah or an Ohio State would have put up a better fight. But, you know, resume and being undefeated matters more, I guess. But... The Georgia-Michigan game I watched a decent bit of. I mean, that game was over, like you said, mid-first quarter. When the, they did the, you know, they tossed to the running back and he threw the touchdown, I went, that's it, that's game. The Michigan team is not built to play from behind. Uh, they're built to run the ball and, and have a lead and keep the lead. Aiden Hutchinson, I don't think, did a whole lot of anything in that game, it didn't feel like. He had, like, one good, he broke on a pass in the flat, which was nice, but had a tackle there or something. I don't quite remember. But that Georgia defense is just, there's something else. There are just, anyone who goes, oh, Oregon can go be Georgia light because we have Dan Lanning. No. That defense is loaded to the gills with NFL talent that we will never have. So anyone who's listening and has that thought in their head, please get it out of there. It's not happening. We're going to be good on, on defense under Lanning because they're a disciplined unit. We're never going to have that amount of talent. I've never seen linebackers run like 
free safeties, and that's what those guys do. They are just unreal. But you know, I it's it's kind of a reason I think to expand the playoff because we all knew this was coming. It's going to be Georgia and Alabama again. It's boring. We're all really sick of seeing the same three teams ish. You know, it's it's going to be Clemson, Ohio State, Georgia, Alabama. You throw in another team that's not going to do anything, and there it is. And I mean, Alabama, I think is since under Nick Saban, they're six and seven, six and one, excuse me, uh, as the underdog. So I don't want to see Bama win another title. It's boring at this point, but I just have kind of a weird feeling that they got Georgia once. I don't think Nick Saban loses to Kirby Smart again, but Smart might really want this one. So we'll just we'll see. I'm not going to make a prediction for the game because unfortunately I won't be able to watch it. But that's going to be a interestingly boring title game. I mean, I've long been on record that I don't think a G5 team ever belongs in a 14 playoff. Um, and I, I'll, I'll hold my soul. I'll stick to that. Um, I think Cincinnati got very lucky that three Power 5 conferences all took themselves out of the playoff contention, the ACC, the Big 12, and the Pac-12. Um, and so they, they were able to get in by default because I don't think they were getting in. If any one of those conferences put up a one-loss champ, they would have taken that spot. So I will I will give Cincinnati credit. They, I thought they played hard. They're just overmatched, and we all knew they were overmatched. And and any anyone pretending otherwise is just not being honest. Bama Bama should have scored forty five or fifty in that game. They really didn't play very well on offense at all. Um, I thought they they really missed a lot of throws, missed a lot of plays. Just really, I think to your point, just seemed kind of disinterested at, at times on on that side of the ball. So we'll see if they can turn it back on again, like they did a couple weeks before, if they can turn it back on again for Georgia next week. I think this is the year. I think this is the year that Georgia breaks through. I just think, like you said, I think they're a more complete team on both sides of the ball. I think they're going to they're gonna want to take some revenge for that SEC title game beating they took a, a few weeks back. And I, I, think, I think they're going to do it. I think they'll probably win by a field goal, three or four points, something like that. In a, in a close game, I don't, I don't know if it'll be a, it's not going to be a high-scoring game. I think it's going to be in the 20s. I think it'll be a good game. Any other thoughts on Bama, Georgia? Go Dan Lanning. Go Dan Lanning. Get a ring. Show, show it off to recruits. Be sure to go follow us on Twitter. Like us on your favorite podcast platform. Share us with your friends. And we'll be back real soon with our next episode. As always, thank you to Ducked Out and Moss for joining me today on the podcast. And we'll see you real soon. Go Ducks. Ducks. Go Ducks.